Hi, I'm Lisbeth Jones, <laughs> one of the wild women who write, and I'm here with my fellow wild woman writer, Kim Connery. And we decided to record a discussion about the romance genre because Kim writes sci-fi romance, she writes urban fantasy romance, and so I could think of no one better to have a discussion about romance, which is, as most of you know, romance is the most popular genre that is read and therefore also written by both men and women. And so it has a definite important place in Western civilization and our culture. And so we'd like to go on a deep dive and hope that you will be interested in listening to where maybe one of your favorite types of books to read has its origins and the impact that it had on all of us in Europe and the United States. So Kim, I'll set this up explaining how I went to one of your events, your talk was describing your ideas about what romance means in general. And it got me really thinking because your topic was about romance and how that ties into the concept of resurrection. So if you don't mind repeating yourself, it was so beautifully put, and I would love for everyone to be able to hear it, not just those who were at the event, but all of you who listen to our podcast as well. Thank you. Yeah, I believe that romance often gets, the romance genre often gets painted with this broad brush of, of, well, it doesn't have any depth, it's just a dime store read, and, but there's something so much deeper at work going on in romance. And what I believe it is, is these are classic tales of resurrection. And in our lives, I believe we're all in cyclical patterns of death and resurrection. And the classic romance is an archetype of that, of a death and resurrection. You have someone who has fallen asleep or experienced a death in a sense in their life. And then someone comes along that makes them feel, it's like a punch in the gut. And it's a type of resurrection. And this can happen not just in a relationship sense, but it happens to all of us perhaps in our career our life goals. Maybe one day we're out walking the dog and we have this moment of melancholy where we realize, gosh, I'm miserable. And we have to think about why that is. And it's often because we've fallen asleep in a sense, or we're almost in a type of death and we need a resurrection. And romance is a symbol of that or metaphor of that, if you will. And so we're all in this cyclical pattern of death and resurrection. And we need that. And romance is a symbol of that. How at any given time in our lives, we can choose to wake up. And that can actually happen, if we're talking relationships, that can happen with somebody that we've been with for 20 years. We can wake up and see that person with new eyes. So this cyclical from, from death to life, it's, it's a reverse situation. Yeah, it's a, it's a classic tale of resurrection. So in contrast to it being this dime store cheap thing, you know, it's the very essence of our lives. Well, definitely in our Western culture, it is. And I think that we take for granted how, how easily we're able to read romances and how accepted they are. But this wasn't always the case. And so I think 
getting a, a brief historical overview to get our bearings on such a big topic deserves to go back to the beginnings of say around in the 18th and 19th century with very few exceptions romance novels were mostly written by white women for white women and about white women which is thankfully no longer the case today there's something for everyone now so that's part of the popularity of romance is that it's very inclusive it's just you have to have a heart that wants to beat and that seems to be its only qualification for being a fan of it it's it's not trying to fit people into a certain mold anymore but at the beginning of it there really weren't a lot of choices and it really has evolved over time it was its own literary form because before that you just had epics and you had narrative poetry and novels were considered sort of trashy and scandalous to be caught reading one and so the beginning of the runaway success of this genre was due to a book called Pamela or Virtue Rewarded which I personally had never heard of before until I looked some of this stuff up and so in this particular book Pamela is a housekeeper who has to spend a lot of time warding off the advances of a predatory employer. So some was, were calling it a morality tale, and this is what justified it being read so widely. But others were calling it pornography in disguise. So there was this fierce debate raging over this book with Pamelists and anti-Pamelists, and it was being discussed even more than politics were discussed at this time. So romance has always been contentious. It's always stirred people up to want to talk about their lives, the implications of it, the morality of it. And it was considered almost one of the, the a birthplace of having psychological complexity, where it was a study of power and its abuse. It wasn't all about just something frivolous, which I think that a lot of people see the genre of romance as they don't see it as some a legitimate literary form and so we're going to hopefully turn that idea on its head as we go further on with this so obviously you know we're all familiar with the writers like Jane Austen and the Bronte sisters and Anne Radcliffe and, and so forth and within that we get our subgenres of gothic romances and neoclassic romances. And so we begin to get even different styles depending on what the readers were interested in. So there is a book out there if you're interested in romance called A Natural History of the Romance Novel by Pamela Regis. And she has a quote that I think is something I'd like to have Kim talk more about. Um, the quote is, the romance novel has the strange distinction of being the most popular but least respected of literary genres. While it remains consistently dominant in bookstores and on bestseller lists, it is also widely dismissed by the critical community. Scholars have alleged that romance novels help create subservient readers who are largely women by confining heroines to stories that ignore issues other than love and marriage. So I was wondering if you have found this attitude 
in discussions or criticisms that you've read or heard. Was there ever a time when you felt like you were encountered with this kind of dismissive attitude that we've been discussing that it's frivolous or it's irrelevant somehow? Oh, absolutely. More than once. But one time that I can recall recently was we were at a book signing at a bookstore and there were four authors there giving a talk and um, one was thriller, let's see, mystery, a couple of fantasy authors and they all mutually agreed during their talk that you know, the romance genre was formulaic and oh, the bodice ripping and oh, it, it always follows the same tropes and there was some eye rolling and I couldn't help but think my goodness, have you even read more than one romance? Have you read broadly in the genre? Because there are so many subgenres of romance. There are so many different kinds of romance. And it would be like picking up one thriller book, for example, reading it and saying, oh, I read one once, I don't care for it. You know, and painting every thriller book with the broad brush from then on when there's so many different kinds of authors, so many different types and ways of telling the story. Um, and I, I've definitely run into that, that attitude that, oh, it's all bodice ripping and swooning and the woman running off with the knight on his white horse to go live in the castle now. And, oh, it's just so much more than that. Anybody that's picked up an Alona Andrews book lately that deals with this incredibly strong female heroine in this post-magical apocalyptic world and, oh my goodness, the fierce fighting and the, you know, the, the layered society with all the, the dense issues that they cover and, oh, goodness, goodness, there's just so much. And it's, yeah, it's really frustrating when, when people just want to shove it all into a box when, when they've read so little of it and, and maybe not, not read a romance since the one they found. And, and if someone hasn't read a lot of the stories for themselves, and it's just simply going by cover art, that could be part of the issue. Oh, it can. And, and, and the truth is we all judge a book by its cover. We do. And, and that can be so frustrating for the writer because especially if you're traditionally published, you may have very little say over how your cover turns out. You may just get this cover one day and just cringe or maybe even cry because it's nothing like what you wanted, what you pictured. But, you know, the marketing department is, is walking a very fine line because most people who want to read a romance they are looking for a spicy, intimate read. So the cover has to convey that at least to some degree, which usually means showing a little skin, but at the same time, the serious author that's writing the romance that de deals with deeper issues and feels that their, their book has a lot of substance, you know, they might not want that much skin to be shown or they might not want to get their cover back and see their heroine in a midriff top with these tight leather pants on. They might just cringe, but they might not have a lot of say over that. So it can be really frustrating when I got the cover back for Stealing Aries, for example, Harlow was not armed. Jack was armed. He had a weapon, but Harlow didn't. And I was frustrated by that 
not that my story is a big shoot 'em up book, you know, because it's not. I mean, there certainly is fighting and there's some battle scenes, but not, you know, it's, it doesn't dominate the story. But the reason that frustrated me is because Harlow is a fighter. She is a trained fighter, and I didn't want to give the impression, you know, big, strong Jack standing behind her. You know, he has a weapon. She does not. I didn't want to give the impression that this is a story where the big, strong man has to take care of my strong female protagonist. No, she can take care of herself. They can take care of each other, right? And so I went back to um, our designer at the publishing house, and I said, can we please arm Harlow? We have to arm her because, you know, she's fierce. She's a fighter herself. You know, I don't want to convey the image that this dude standing behind her has to always defend her, you know? So yeah, it's, it's a fine line. It really is. It sounds like that you really made a point to create a character who didn't fall in line with the idea that the women are going to be subservient to the male protagonist and that she was going to have this freedom of choice. It was going to be the opposite of enslavement and that she was going to have some personal agency in the story. Did that determination to write a character like that, did that come out of any stories that you had read that frustrated you? That It did, yes. I remember um, when I was a kid, you know, some of the, the earlier books that I had read, a lot of them consisted of, it did consist of that typical man throws the woman on the horse, you know, and they ride off to his castle and he has the, the sword and, and the horse and, you know, he goes off on, on an adventure. So it's great till they get together and things are great. And, but then she's stuck at the castle and he still gets to go off on the adventures, but she's stuck in a drafty castle having babies, you know, and where's her adventure now? What happens to her now? You know, and I remember when I was a kid, you know, talking about what I wanted to be when I grow up. And I said, well, you know, it's really cool to be a firefighter. You know, I thought that was just, just the coolest thing. And I remember someone patting me on the head and saying, oh, honey, that's a man's job. And that always frustrated me, you know, because why couldn't I have adventures? Why couldn't I do something really cool like that? And as, as much as it irritated me when I was a kid, as I grew older, it bothered me more and more and more. And a story that I had read um, in college that I thought was really, really cool, especially cool because it was written in 1879 uh, by Henrik Ibsen, Norwegian. It's called A Doll's House. And there's a quote, and, and, and the author said he didn't mean for it to even be a feminist play, but he certainly tapped into some things. There's a quote from A Doll's House where the wife, Nora, had said, let's see, how did she phrase it? Yes, she said, she said she cannot be a good mother, a wife, without learning to be more than a plaything. You know, she didn't want to see herself she said she had been treated like a doll to play with for her whole life, first by her father and then by him. And that really stuck with me because this is something that people were noticing back in 1879. And I would imagine when A Doll's House came out, the play, that that was just scandalous, revolutionary. People were probably seeing the play in secret and then not telling anybody, or maybe they were bragging on it to 
certain people, but, you know, people have always known that this kind of attitude existed, you know, but now we can talk about it a lot more, more openly. Right. I think it's great that you brought up that particular play and the idea of a woman deciding for herself that she's not a plaything, that she has her own place in the world. And, you know, even as far back as the 1800s, but if we go even a little farther back, we can see that the romance genre is specifically and uniquely responsible for some of the developments of Western civilization and the concept of the individual. We're all familiar with the Camelot stories, but there is another story written right about the same time about Tristan and Isolde. And this was in the 1200s and it's a Celtic tale. And this particular story is credited with upending the ideas that we have about who's in charge, who has the right to do what, the individual. It just was uh, a turning point in literature that went on to affect all of the, the literature that came after it. And we, we maybe take for granted the way that we think of the individual because we're not living in the same times that this story was written and that was just a completely radical departure from all of the epic tales and the narrative poems that have been told up to this point. So very briefly, the background of this story is that there is a king, King Mark of Cornwall, who's going to form a political alliance by marrying a maiden named Isolde in a neighboring realm. So he sends his nephew, Tristan, to fetch her and bring her back. Well, Isolde is not thrilled with the idea of being a plaything for anyone or making a political alliance as a human being. She would, wishes that she could make her own choices. And when she and Tristan meet up with each other, lo and behold, they fall in love and they have a choice ahead of them. Is Isolde going to go back and fulfill her duty to her own realm by making this alliance with King Mark? Or is Tristan going to carry out his duty and take her back there? Or are they going to decide for themselves? So letting the cat out of the bag and telling a spoiler several hundred years later, they decide to not go back to Cornwall. They, they choose each other, they choose for themselves. Well, it seems like in today's time, that would be the obvious choice. But at that time, under the feudal system, the whole structure of people's place in society was based on the idea that leadership was a divine right of kingship. It was from God, bequeathed upon a person. So going against your king, your lord, whoever was in charge of you was the same as going and rebelling against God himself. So this would get you the nice little consequence of eternal damnation and physical punishment. These people believed in an actual physical hell that you would be eternally punished. So this was a radical story for that time. They could not even conceive why anyone would wanna do something like this. And so, you know, apart from the morality aspect of it, there's a spiritual aspect of it too. There's religious overtones to it because at this time, 
you have in Dante's Inferno, the three worst villains of it are Judas Iscariot, but also Brutus and Cassius who rebelled against Caesar. So Tristan is more or less gonna get the same fate as these three. And so it's very difficult for people to appreciate just what Tristan and Isolde felt like they were doing to make this choice for themselves. So imagine, if you will, that all that time ago when you see those two people saying, devil be damned, I'm gonna choose for each other, and they throw off all of their, quote, shackles with reckless abandon, that phrase that romance likes to use, to follow their heart's desire. So the first romance is actually all about personal choice and agency, no matter what the cost. And it, and it wasn't just narrow roles for women as well. For men, they had to work in their ancestors' line, whether it was farming or being a blacksmith or being forced to go into the priesthood. These people just didn't have choices like we do today. So in choosing another person for yourself, as opposed to the choices that have been made for you, I believe that the spiritual aspect is what is unique to romance as a genre. I think that this choosing for the spirit is what people want to read, as well as the spiciness, as well as the, the quickening heartbeat. They want to see people who are making choices or their own individual spirit. So the, the story of Tristan and Isolde, we get a big poke in the eye to religious tradition that where you're supposed to fulfill your role. And it, I see this as tying back into Kim's talk on resurrection, because here we have these people who feel enslaved and that they're experiencing a slow death. So I feel like this goes back to what we were saying about resurrection. Yeah, I do feel that it does go back to the, the classic tale of resurrection. You have these people who feel that they've fallen asleep in some way or that they've experienced a, a type of death and, you know, they need that spark back in their life, the divine spark, you know. And I believe that that's, that's what these tales are. And there's... Sometimes I believe that, that romance stories are avoided, looked at with suspicion, or sort of hidden away, or people don't want to admit that they're reading them. And I would argue these are people that are, are sometimes afraid of the, their own nature or that they'll, they'll see something within themselves that needs addressing and then they're responsible for it. Like once you turn and look at something like a, a deficit in your own life, something that needs attention. And, and again, like as we talked about at the beginning of this episode, these classic tales of resurrection don't just have to be romantic. I mean, you could come away from reading a romance story and sense this, this void, this empty space. And it's not necessarily for a romantic relationship. You may see that, that that empty space has something to do with the goal that you should be going for in your life. Um, a long dormant dream, you know, something in your career. There's all kinds of ways that we fall asleep and we need resurrection in our life. And so I think sometimes people who avoid reading romance or admitting that they're reading it it's because they don't want to, to delve that deep into their own nature, into their own life. They don't, want to, they don't want to look that close. 
and they don't want to admit that they've looked that close. And so people tend to avoid it, but I would argue it's one of the best things that, that we can do because it, it lets us see clearly, you know, the most tender parts of ourselves, parts of ourselves that need, need the most attention, you know, that need resurrection, you know, this theme of resurrection. And I believe that's what romantic tales are. I like what you were saying that it's not the focus of romance that the couple is almost symbolic of the greater need underneath Absolutely. to establish and um, be born again to the spirit is how they put it in in religious traditions but with romance it's the spirit of the individual coming back to life again as you were saying and I see that happening with your character Saint Nicholas of Nicholas Eternal, where, you know, the focus of that story definitely has a romantic element with a couple in it, but really it's his spiritual state that is the focus of this work that you've created that I find really interesting that it's, you know, there is definitely a relationship that you're rooting for, but if he doesn't, um, resolve his inner state at some point with the brokenness that he's experiencing, then, you know, the room, the, the couple, the relationship isn't going to be as satisfying. And so was it something about your upbringing or your understanding of romance or what, what led you to want to create the character? Of Nicholas. Yeah. Was it a personal experience you had or? It was, and I love this question. And, and one thing I, I would mention about Nicholas is he's somebody who's seen a lot of trauma and a lot of violence. And this sort of ties in with our, our previous question too, you know, with the, the spirituality and, and romance. A lot of people will sit and watch violent movies or read violent books all day long. But if presented with romance books or scenes of intimacy, oh, no, 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 no. I don't, I don't read open door bedroom scenes or I don't, I don't watch those kind of movies. They can watch 10 murders in a row and be fine. <laughs> and, you know, I, I don't necessarily have a problem with, with violence in books or movies. But what I am saying is can we Think about that for a second. Can we look at that for mm -hmm. just a second and ask ourselves, what in the world is going on with us that we have no problem with, with violence and even gore sometimes, but these same people who have no problem with that will get mightily upset over a bedroom scene. And I'm talking about even a bedroom scene between two people who are very much in love. I'm just saying. <laughs> exactly. There's a problem there. And so this ties in with Nicholas. This is an individual who is an immortal at this point. He's been alive for 1700 years. And for most of the vast amount of that time, he has seen the worst of society, a lot of violence and very, very little love. And it has just broke this man. And this is where the story starts. And yeah, it did connect to uh, my own personal story. I was a children's advocate and seeing day in, day out, you know, the horrible things that could happen 
um, when I was a children's advocate and even when the case would wrap up and the children were in the placement that they were going to be in and move on to the next case, you never felt happy or it was just an ending. It wasn't necessarily a happy ending. It was just this feeling like, well, there's a million more that need help. And it felt like you were never doing enough. And there's some trauma in my own past that, that made me want to, to serve in that, that position as a children's advocate. And so when we meet Nicholas in Nicholas Eternal, this is an immortal who has a gift to rescue missing or abused children, a supernatural gift for it. He is a hero, but what I think is interesting about any hero is it seems like it would be a fun thing to have these supernatural abilities, immortality, fighting for what's right in the world. But I think it would actually be kind of miserable because it would wear you down so hard that the emotional and spiritual exhaustion would just be too much. And so this is where we, we find Nicholas. But I think paradoxically, this can be a beautiful place as well because when you're that broken, you're at a place where all of the fluff and all of the junk and all of these sort of illusions that we build around ourselves, all these stories that we tell ourselves about who we are, sometimes a lot of that has fallen away once we reach this broken state. There's just this emptiness. And emptiness sounds bad and it can feel bad, but the good thing about it is you're at this wonderful place then to be filled. And given the right circumstances, you could be filled with light. And I think that's the beautiful thing about a good romance story is you can find someone in need of light, in need of resurrection. And we're back to that, that theme. And you can do such a beautiful thing with that in the story. Find someone that's broken and you can show this example of how light and love can do such beautiful things in a life for a human being. And that's what Nicholas Eternal is about. And I believe that that's what the heart of any good romance story is. And they just don't get enough credit for the, the beauty that they bring to the human experience. And why are we so scared to look at that? You know, this, this is a beautiful thing and this is, the kind of light and resurrection that we should welcome into our life. When you mentioned the word fluff, I was thinking, hopefully we've stripped away the fluff from the idea that romance as a genre is only considered as frivolous, that it's only about two people getting together and tearing their clothes off. But it's actually, as you can hear, it's about some existential angst it's about the individual spirit. It's about the personal agency and choice of the characters. And so it has been wonderful being able to talk to you about all of this. And hopefully everyone who enjoys the romance genre, whether they read it or they write it, they will now do it openly and with enjoyment and a commitment to standing up for what they like to read. There you go. So thank you for this time, Kim. This was such a pleasure. Thank you.